Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah. How are you doing, Darcy? I'm doing okay. Um, feeling a little bit run down. Got tested for COVID. I don't have the results back yet, but just kind of feeling not great. So, You know it's really scary when your co-host might potentially have COVID. Thank goodness yeah. that we're not recording in the same space. Um, thank goodness for Skype. Yeah, right. Um, so my co-host is feeling a little under the weather. Hopefully we'll be able to get knock this recording session out um, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, she said they scraped a lot of her brain particles. Yeah, out I feel like I had a lobotomy. Um, they stick that thing so it's like a tiny little like wiry kind of. Um, it's like a like it's, it looks like it's got like a very small pipe cleaner at the end of it, and they like stick it up both your nostrils. And I swear to God, I thought it was going to come out of my eyes. Like it was so like so she stuck it so far up there. I don't understand. If they can test and detect COVID on surfaces, if they can test and detect COVID in air particles, why do they need to stick that thing all the way up in your brain to find out if you uh, have COVID? That's a good question. That doesn't question. make any damn sense to me. I, it makes no sense. Well, I think, I don't actually know. I guess it's because when they do like the testing on surfaces and stuff that's in a laboratory with like the controlled settings at the CDC, and then this is like every individual state you know, public health department is getting their results and testing them. So they want to make sure they have good samples and everybody has, has their own different way of taking the sample. So they want to Why make can't sure. Why they just scrape the inside of your cheek? Why do they have to freaking drill into your brain? Like that makes no uh, sense to me. I, I think something's fishy with that. I don't know. I, I mean, on the one hand, if they that's the. DNA particles and determine who your family is and what your genetics are with the scraping on the inside, with saliva from your mouth. But yet to find COVID, they have to scrape the inside of your brain. Like That's how they do for a flu test, too, though. So I don't know. Mm. I don't know. But if, if that's the most accurate way to find out, that's fine. But I, it certainly was not comfortable. I don't want to have to do it again. But yeah. here we are. So today's episode is one that we've been talking about for quite a long time, and we knew that we needed to do a bit of research to get into it, and we had to kind of present it in a way that was unique and a little bit different from how other podcasts have done it. And then as well, we had some microphone issues on my side. I think my microphone was going out, and it was so crackly that we just we had to wait on things until I got a brand new microphone, which I do now, so yay. Yay. <laughs> um, but we're actually going to tackle this case today. Darcy, you want to tell the listeners what you are presenting. Yeah, we've been wanting to talk about this case for a long time, but because it's so well known and involves forensic biomechanics, I wanted to wait until I'd done the research on it because ultimately I want to present this as if I were being consulted by either the prosecution or defense team in this specific case because that's what I want to do when I finish my degree. Wow, fancy. So, um, so we're going to talk about the death of Kathleen Peterson and the staircase. And the first thing that I want to do is I want to kind of talk about Kathleen's death from a timeline perspective. And then I want to start talking about like kind of the different theories. And then finally, I'm going to get into the research and kind of share for you guys my perspective as hopefully a subject matter expert on this. And I'm going to jump in periodically with colorful commentary. Well, and legal (laughs) stuff too, because there's a bunch of legal stuff in this. So on December 9th, 2001, Michael Peterson called 911 to report that his wife Kathleen had fallen down the stairs of their Durham, North Carolina home. Okay. 
Kathleen was found lying on her back at the bottom of the stairs. And this is pretty narrow stairwell. So like if you've seen the documentary, you know what I'm talking about. But you know how like in big mansions, there's like the main stairwell that looks really nice. And then there's kind of like a back stairwell that's usually the more commonly used one that kind of like goes to the kitchen or something like that. Yeah. Usually this like those is estate kind of, homes, almost yeah. like major estate homes have that kind of a situation. Yeah. And so this kind of looks like it's one of those back stairwells. It's like, it's, it's very narrow. It's not like anything like super fancy, like you would expect in a mansion. So it's kind of probably one that's like just a back stairwell. And at the bottom of these stairs, there's like a 90 degree turn near the bottom. So there's not a landing, but the bottom two or three stairs are kind of perpendicular to the rest of the stairs. So like it kind of curves. And Kathleen was at the bottom of the stairs, but her back was propped up on those bottom two or three stairs. So it looked like she was kind of sitting up. And when first responders got to the scene, they immediately noticed the amount of blood. And some of the first responders even said that the blood under Mrs. Peterson's head looked like it was coagulating, like it had been there for a while. Mm -hmm. And blood on Kathleen's clothes appeared to be dry and there was blood spatter observed by the paramedics on Michael's clothing and body. And there was also blood on the hallway of the stairs that appeared to have been wiped or smeared with someone's fingers. Like it doesn't look like somebody took like a cloth and tried to wipe it away, like to clean it up, but it looked like somebody put their hand on it and then like kind of wiped. Just inadvertently or like on purpose? I mean, I don't know how you tell from finger swipes, but it looks like like if you were to put your hand on something and you were like, oh, what is that? And you like took your hand off like, oh, and wiped your fingers. Okay. That's kind of what it would, what it looked like. Um, so due to the amount of blood at the scene and the results of the autopsy that would later be performed, law enforcement officials arrested Michael Peterson and he was indicted for the first degree murder of his wife, Kathleen. So... Michael Peterson is an author. He was originally from Nashville, Tennessee. He graduated from Duke University, which is in Durham, and he got a bachelor's degree in political science. And shortly after that, he started working as a civilian for the Department of Defense, and he was researching military involvement in Vietnam. So this is like the mid-60s, so we're just starting to kind of escalate our quote-unquote military intervention in Vietnam. Okay. And this job ends up taking him to West Germany, where he met and married a woman named Patricia Sue. And they would go on to have two sons, Clayton and Todd. And in 1968, Peterson enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, and he ultimately does serve in the Vietnam War. But he gets honorably discharged in 1971 at the rank of captain after a car accident left him with a permanent disability. All right. Okay. And during his time in the military, he received a silver star and a bronze star with valor. But he also claimed that he received two purple hearts, one for being shot and one for being hit by shrapnel when another soldier stepped on a landmine in Vietnam. He would later admit to lying about that one with the shrapnel um, that was actually awarded for the car accident that he got into. Um, but either Wait, way, he got awarded a purple star for a car accident. He said he got awarded a Purple Heart for a car accident, but the Raleigh News and Observer newspaper could not find any documentation for either of the Purple Hearts. Yeah. So he appeared That's, to have made that up. To me, is like the lowest of the low to lie about something like that. 
Well, and he had a silver star and a bronze star with valor, so I don't know why you need to lie about a purple heart anyway, but... But he lied about it twice, not just once, He lied about... Yeah. And he actually had the purple hearts, but he didn't have the commendations, the accompanying commendations, so I don't know where he got the purple hearts. Maybe he just bought them on eBay or something, but... And how likely is it that someone would have two purple hearts? Pretty likely. Yeah? Because it's just, you get a... Yeah, you get a purple heart for a combat injury. So it doesn't matter how debilitating. So it could be a minor injury and then you they but that not enough to like I mean not a minor injury. I don't want to make light of it, but it's not enough to send you home from combat kind of a thing. Hmm. Interesting. So it's not yeah, it's not uncommon. But Peterson and Patricia continued to live in Germany and they became friends with another couple, Elizabeth and George Ratliff. And George Ratliff was a captain in the Air Force. And he actually ended up dying of a heart attack during the invasion of Grenada in 1983. And Elizabeth Ratliff would later die in 1985. And the Petersons took in their two daughters, Margaret and Martha. So Michael and Patricia Peterson actually divorced in 1987. And their sons, Clayton and Todd, stayed with Patricia. While the Ratliff daughters, Margaret and Martha, moved with Michael to Durham. And eventually, Clayton and Todd would also move to North Carolina with Michael. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about Kathleen. We know she was born in February 1953. And at the time of her death, was an executive with Nortel, which is a telecommunications company based out of Canada. And prior to marrying Michael Peterson, she was married to a man named uh, Fred Atwater, and she actually had a daughter, Caitlin, from that marriage. And it's not known when Kathleen and Michael met, but it must have been pretty shortly after he returned from Germany because by 1989, it says they were living together. And he divorced his wife, Patricia, in 1987. So it must have been pretty quick. Um And they did not have any children of their own together, but now their family includes Michael's sons, Clayton and Todd, the Ratliff children, Margaret and Martha, and Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin. Hmm. So back to the night of Kathleen's death. So I'm not going to play the 911 call. I'm sure you guys have heard it all before. It's on the Netflix documentary, you know, et cetera. But Michael calls 911 at 2.40 a.m. on the morning of December 9th. And says that he had just found Kathleen unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. And you can tell he's really frantic in this call. Like he's just, you know, it's it's that thing where the operator is asking questions and he's like, what? I don't know. What? Can you get somebody here? Kind of a thing. And he's obviously distressed. And when the 911 operator asks how many stairs she fell down, he said he guessed that she had fallen down 15 or maybe 20. That's like a lot of stairs. Like most stairwells are more than or not that long I would I don't think but I I don't know I'm just trying to count the staircase yeah. in front of me right now <laughs> yeah it's 15 is a lot so his story is that they started out watching a movie about 11 p.m and when the movie ended they went out onto their back porch to continue talking and then after that they went down to the pool to continue talking and if you've seen that documentary or an aerial view of their property you know the pool is like a good little walk away from their house so this is all in like the first three minutes of the first episode of that documentary and it kind of does seem 
like he is giving a little too much detail, like unsolicited, you know, like it kind of, it's kind of like he's protesting a little bit too much. Yeah. Most experts will tell you that when somebody provides too much detail, it usually means they're lying mm-hmm. or they're making it up. Yeah, like he says what movie they watched. He says they left their dinner plates in the living room after the movie was over, this, that, the other. So to the cynic, it does sound like he's, you know, making it up. But this is also 2004, and reality-style documentaries, I think, are pretty kind of new. And we don't know how it was edited. So, like, the maybe the director was asking him questions, and then they just put that in. They cut the director's, you know, questions and put that in as, like, Michael was just soliciting advice and, you know, this, that, the other. And and the other thing is Michael's a, a novelist, so maybe he's just used to providing that kind of information. Like, he's just used to providing a bunch of detail. I don't, I don't know, but, like, if you do go back and watch the documentary, just kind of keep that in mind. We don't know how this thing was edited. Right. Right. So he says that they're they're sitting by the pool drinking wine and that Kathleen had gone to bed because she had a conference call the next morning and he stayed out for some period of time and he says he came back in the house and that's when he found her at the bottom of the stairs. He also speculated that she must have fallen down the stairs after consuming a combination of wine and Valium. So he just randomly got up at like 2.30 in the morning and was like, oh, I think I'll just go downstairs and do what no he he was still outside by his pool he says he came in from the pool area and found her at the bottom of the stairs so like she went in to go to bed before him and he stayed out for i don't know however long okay so i don't know if you need to hear this but do not combine alcohol and painkillers or sedatives yeah it exacerbates Um, any reaction that you're body's going to have to either one of those yes um they're both nervous system depressants which means it slows your heart rate it slows your respiration do not do this it can kill you but that's just my little sidebar um so toxicology results on kathleen did show that she had a blood alcohol content of 0.07 okay so she was basically drunk right well 0.08 is drunk so well right but she was almost i mean she she was almost le- legally drunk. You know, I don't know. I can't say for how she, she was, felt yeah, or how she was because walking. Because of the fact or... that she was on other things, though, she could have very well been very yes. incapacitated regardless of the level of alcohol in her blood, right? Yes, exactly. And c- the combination of those two things could have been um, debilitating. But that's, you know, we don't know what she was. We don't know her behavior, basically. The crime scene analysis was performed by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Dwayne Deaver. He noted a significant amount of blood on the stairs and walls, and luminal testing showed bare footprints leading from the stairwell to the laundry room. So Mm -hmm. maybe this is something that was cleaned up, and then luminal testing showed it. Kathleen's autopsy was performed at the office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Chapel Hill. Dr. Kenneth Snell was the first medical examiner to examine Kathleen's remains, and he observed multiple lacerations on her scalp, as well as a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So let's take a sidebar real quick and talk about what that is and what that means. So between the brain and the skull, there are three layers of protective tissue called meninges, and the deepest layer is the one that's actually touching the brain and the spinal cord. That's called the pia mater. The middle layer is called the arachnoid mater. 
and the outermost layer is the one that touches the skull. That's called the dura mater. So between the arachnoid and the and the pia mater, so the set between the second and third innermost layers, you have a space filled with cerebrospinal fluid, and that's basically the fluid that fills that protects your brain from knocking against your skull when you move your head. Okay. Um, and so when something happens and your your brain moves really rapidly inside your head and the the cerebrospinal fluid can't like protect it that's actually what is a concussion that's like a really remedial oh wow explanation of how you get a yeah so that's like a really remedial explanation of a concussion um and super interesting yeah so but anyway back to the autopsy so kathleen had a subarachnoid hemorrhage which means there was bleeding in the space between the arachnoid layer and the pia layer so second and third layer Yep, between the second and third layer. So sub in anatomy language means below. So okay. it's below the arachnoid layer, right? And what does so, that mean for for the lay person? Right? It means that she so there's there should not be blood in that area, but that but that she did bleed into that area. So but from if she a fell hit, down the an, stairs, then there should not have been blood if she hit her head on the stair in that area. No, you couldn't tell you wouldn't be able to tell the cause of that. You would just be able to tell that she had an injury to her head that caused that. You wouldn't okay. be able to tell if it was like a fall or a uh, instrument. Okay, or yeah. a blunt, blunt force injury. Right. With an instrument. Yep. Okay. Yep. So she also had bruises on her back, arms, wrists, hands, and face, and she had a fractured thyroid cartilage. So typically, a fractured thyroid cartilage does not happen absent direct trauma to the neck. So yeah, this is different from a hyoid. Neck. It is in the front of the neck. From it's like a front butterfly of the neck. shaped in the front of the neck, right? Yes. And so typically that happens due to a trauma to the actual neck. So that doesn't typically happen from an injury to the head. Like, for instance, um, strangulation? What? It can happen in strangulation. That's when it's typically seen. But I actually did just read a research article this morning where if you do fall and you, like, bend your – and your head ends up bending really far forward, like your chin to your chest, you can uh-huh. actually fracture that. Wow. So. Okay. Yeah. So, But it's very unusual. That's like a one – like a ver- like a one-time – but if you fell backwards, you fell backward and rolled over backwards. Conceivably, you could bend your head in that sort of a way and right fracture that. Interesting, right? But right, okay, keep going. So during the initial autopsy, Doctor Snell noted that the probable cause was a closed head injury, meaning there was no fracture to her skull due to blunt force trauma to the head from falling down the stairs. All right. Okay. So when he says blunt force trauma, he means her head hit the stairs or the wall or the ground. Right? Not an instrument from somebody else clawing right. with her skull. Right. The blunt object in this case is the ground. Okay. And he did note, though, that this was f- pending a final autopsy. And that final autopsy was performed by Dr. Deborah Radish. And she says that the lacerations on the scalp were inconsistent with falling on a flat surface and more in line with beating with the blunt instrument, like a fireplace blow poke. Yeah, I don't and see how you would get lacerations from a fall down the stairs. Do you? I do, and we're going to talk about that because I actually okay. wrote a research paper on this. That's actually what gave me the opportunity to do all the work for this episode is because I wrote right. a research paper on, <laughs> on this. So that's where a lot of this is coming from. Okay. So... The, uh, the court opinion from LexisNexis says that Dr. Radish actually did put in her report that the weapon was likely a blowpoke because it's kind of hollow. Like, it's 
on the inside it's hollow it's not solid like a baseball bat or something okay and i think that's really interesting that that's what she put in her autopsy report because that's then going to be put into the legal record um as the murder weapon so that's kind of interesting but Hmm. in her final autopsy report dr radish noted her experience examining deaths from falls downstairs and that she had studied 29 such cases of death of similar age to the victim And out of those 29 cases, 17 had no scalp lacerations, 12 had a single laceration, and none showed multiple lacerations consistent with Kathleen's injuries. So all of that led Dr. Radish to conclude that her official cause of death was multiple blunt force impacts to the back of the head due to beating, and the manner of death was listed as homicide. Hmm. All right. So... This trial was a hot mess from beginning to end. If you've seen the documentary, you know what I'm talking about. So the prosecution was led by Mike Nifong, who I would love to talk about, but I just don't think we have enough time. I've still got five pages of script left to read. But basically, he was the prosecutor from the Duke lacrosse scandal and ultimately was disbarred for his behavior during that case. Um, So that's who's leading this show. The first thing is they couldn't find the fireplace blowpoke. And if you're going to put that in your autopsy report that this is a murder weapon, it seems to me that you should be able to produce it during trial. Hmm. I mean, I know you don't have to produce a murder weapon. I know you don't even have to state what you think the murder weapon is. But if you're going to go far enough to say, I think it was a blowpoke, if I'm on the jury, I need to see that blowpoke. You can't just say, I think it was a blowpoke, as opposed to a crowbar or a baseball bat or anything. Just any blowpoke, though, not the murder weapon, right? Well... Maybe, but it would help if you found a blowpoke in the house. Yeah, they but couldn't what if find he got one rid the of house. the murder weapon? So well, he could very easily get rid of that. He had plenty yes. of time. Yes. So that is possible problem number one. As for the motive, the prosecution said that the Petersons were deeply in debt and that Kathleen had a pretty big life insurance policy and a state that would go toward paying that down. Um, And this is probably the part everybody remembers is they also produced emails detailing an affair Michael was having or he was going online looking for male sex workers and meeting up with men uh, that he met on the Internet. And they claimed that his secret sex life was the other motive. And the assistant DA actually said Kathleen would have been infuriated by learning that her husband, who she truly loved, was bisexual and having an extramarital relationship, not with another woman, but with a man, which would have been humiliating and embarrassing to her. We believe that once she learned this information, that an argument ensued and a homicide occurred. Hmm. And like, first of all, settle down. But second of all, this is 2001, and this probably would have been a big deal to, like, the wealthy set in North Carolina, you know? So, like... Uh, yeah, it's the South, and it's, you know... Yeah. And I think she would have had a ago. tremendous reaction. Now, if we look at it in context of today, yeah, maybe not so much, but still, I, I think of my mom and, you know, mm-hmm. my aunties, and t- in thinking of what they would have done in a reaction in the same circumstance, and I think they would have flipped out... So that's interesting because Michael's defense team and their children all said that Kathleen knew about Michael's bisexuality and that she had no issue with him meeting men online. And um, but do they, they have almost, proof of that? 
I don't think they is do have proof word, of that. Is it just hearsay? Like, because to me, it doesn't well, seem like they have any proof. Right. And I don't know how you prove that, though. I mean, unless you, like, get something in writing, like, Michael, I'm okay with you meeting men online. Love, Kathleen. Like, you know what I mean? Right. So, but did she really know about it? Or was it one of those things where, you know how some people know that another person is gay? You just instinctively know. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody knows that. Was it one mm-hmm. of those kind of things? According to their children, Kathleen was accepting of this and that they almost sort of had an open relationship. So it, it seemed as if it was something that was discussed at some yeah, point, according seems, to their children. I don't I don't have any that other, That seems you know? very, very progressive for this type of a couple in that yeah. part of the world during that time period. Like, they right. would have had to have an exceptionally special and unique relationship, which I don't think so. Given his history and his lying... I just, I don't, I tend to not believe him on yeah. that. We, we don't know that they did. We don't know if they didn't. I don't know. So we're going to get into the expert witnesses later because that's kind of my research that I did for this. But for the other aspects of the trial, the prosecution also brought up the death of Elizabeth Ratliff. Now, if you recall, Michael and his first wife, Patricia, took in Elizabeth Ratliff's children after she died in 1985. But it turns out Elizabeth died in a way that was very similar to the way Kathleen died. Hmm. Interesting. On the morning of November 24th, 1985, the Ratliff's nanny found Elizabeth dead at the foot of her stairs. And because they lived on a military base, her death was investigated by both the German police and the U.S. military police. And... The results of her autopsy stated that she died from spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage and that her death was natural. So basically they said she had a hemorrhage while she was standing at the top of her stairs and she died immediately. And then her body fell down the stairs and that's what resulted in the trauma to her body. I don't believe that. I mean, what are the odds that this one dude would be connected to two women that died in virtually the same way? Like, it is pretty unusual. No way. No way. So apparently Elizabeth did suffer from von Willebrand disease, which is a blood clotting disorder. And the autopsy confirmed this based on the fact that there was blood found in her cerebrospinal fluid. There's normally not blood found there. So she did have a bleed somewhere. So these are European doctors, probably military doctors that are conducting this. Well, it was a German medical examiner and the u.s military police yeah i i don't think so so. and it was also 1985 yeah i don't think so i don't think they were thorough i don't think they did as good a job i don't think their techniques were as advanced as they are now and i think that it's one of those circumstances where if you look for something wrong you're gonna find it and you're gonna find a nice little convenient excuse to wrap the whole thing up and call it a day well The prosecution team would agree with you because they actually had her remains exhumed in Texas. And a second autopsy was performed before Michael's trial. And this was performed by Dr. Radish, Mm -hmm. the same medical examiner who performed Kathleen's autopsy. Okay. All right. Dr. Radish, the one that was like, it was definitely a poker, a fireplace poker. Yep. That's the one. She found seven severe lacerations to her scalp as well as a linear skull fracture under one of the lacerations. So this is different from Kathleen because Kathleen did not have any skull fractures. Okay. Okay. And Dr. Radish concluded that Elizabeth's manner of death was homicide. And 
The prosecution didn't outright accuse him of murdering Elizabeth, but they did say that it gave him an idea of how to fake Kathleen's death and make it look like an accident. Yeah, why does he have to have hit her with something? Couldn't he just shove her down the stairs? It's just as bad. It's still murder. Why do we have to have a poker involved? So, yeah, so that's a great question, and I want to get to that when we get into the research because the fracture patterns are different. So, finally, the blowpoke, the actual supposed murder weapon, was found by the defense toward the end of the trial. Apparently, it had been sitting in the Mm. garage the whole time and had been overlooked by police. And there were tests on it. They took pictures of it. There is dust and there's cobwebs. Clearly, it had not been moved in a long time and could not have been the actual murder weapon. So there's no blood, no DNA, no nothing on it. No, and there's like, it's like sitting, if I remember correctly, I think it's like sitting in like a corner or maybe on a windowsill or something. And there's like cobwebs from the wall to the blowpoke. So like, it wasn't moved from that corner. Yeah. I just, I never believed for one moment when I read this that it was the blowpoke. And that's the thing is if I'm on that jury and I hear, oh, you say it was a blowpoke and they just found this blowpoke that clearly hasn't been moved and maybe years I you're gonna have you're digging yourself out of a hole you know as far as I'm concerned I'm gonna probably question everything that that medical professional has Mm -hmm. said today yes once something like that happens which is unfortunate because there's it's very likely that she could have made some very salient and Mm -hmm. very you know good points but well, and there was no reason because for her that, to have said what she thought the murder weapon was. She, she's yeah. gone too far. She could have just said an elongated instrument similar to a blowpoke. I mean, and that would have been, com- that she would have, you know, completely gotten herself. She didn't even have to go that far. Yeah, you're she right. could have just said blunt force trauma with an object. Like, what, I've heard plenty of times where a similar explanation happened and they never got into yeah. detail as to what specifically the object was, what it was shaped like. They just exactly. didn't. Because they don't want to corner themselves. They don't want to get themselves tucked into a corner that they can't And that's exactly what happened. And so, crazily though, well, I guess it's not crazy, but on October 10th, 2003, Michael Peterson was found guilty of the first degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. And he actually gets granted a new trial in 2010 and he's released from prison pending trial and on February 24th 2017 he entered an Alford plea to the voluntary manslaughter of Kathleen so just to be clear that basically means that you are saying okay I'll accept this sentence but you are admitting no guilt right you're saying like they they had enough proof where they, if we'd gone to trial, they could have convicted me, but I'm still going to maintain that I'm innocent. Right. So it's you get a little bit more leniency in that sort of a situation than if you were to be mm-hmm. found guilty. But it's still interesting because you admit no guilt, and I just mm-hmm. I'm fascinated as to what that does to your parole chances. Well, so he was sentenced to 86 months in prison with credit for time served on an Alfred plea, and because he'd. Mm. Yeah, because he'd already served 98 months, he did not face additional prison time. And 
Last I heard, he was planning to write a book about the death of Kathleen and the trial. Oh, my God. Which has a very if-I-did-it vibe kind of to it. So gross. Like, how does somebody who kills somebody get 85 months in prison and just walk out and write a book about it? I mean, come on. So... I first saw The Staircase, like, back when it was on some documentary channel before it got to Netflix. It was years ago. And this is actually the case that made me want to go into forensic biomechanics when I saw that they actually had a forensic biomechanist testify at the trial. Mm-hmm. And this is where I want to get into the evidence and the expert witnesses. Because when I first saw this documentary, I did not think that he did it. I did not think the documentary proved to me that he did it. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't think that documentary highlights it. But, like, when you look at all of the information together, like, I think I saw it was either Dateline NBC. I think it was probably Dateline NBC. But after I saw that and then I read and researched the case myself, to mm-hmm. me, like, it was just too much of a coincidence that he would have some other woman in his life die of similar circumstances. To me, that mm-hmm. was the nail in the coffin. Like, along with the other evidence that was presented in this case, along with all the circumstances behind his alleged argument or disagreement with his wife about the extramarital affair all of that in like combination to me was just guilty guilty Mm -hmm. guilty no question in my mind he's guilty so all right so let's talk about the expert witness testimony and all the evidence right okay so the first thing i want to talk about because i don't think we've actually ever gone into this on the show is what is biomechanics um and basically, biomechanics is just, this, or in terms of forensics, is just studying the injuries caused when one moving object impacts another object, either moving or stationary. Okay. So this can happen. I mean, it could be a car accident. That can be, you know, that can be forensic biomechanics. When you're taking it and applying it to the law, that's what makes it forensics. So when, when the impact occurs, it basically causes the objects to rapidly stop moving. And we can actually measure that rate of change as an acceleration, so we can measure that. And when that acceleration, the acceleration of stopping exceeds, like, the tolerance of the material, that's when you have failure. So, like, your car is going to wreck um, or you're going to have a fracture or, like, that's when that's when injury occurs. Like, failure is basically injury, right? Okay. So that is kind of in a nutshell forensic biomechanics if that did make sense i'm not sure if it did but um what so what is blunt made sense to me okay good so so what is blunt force trauma and so blunt force trauma are basically injuries caused by an impact from a blunt object that can be a baseball bat like a hammer or crowbar or it can be the ground so falling on the ground or falling down the stairs does qualify as blunt force trauma all right Which I, I think some people may not have known or understood that. Yeah. So it's an interesting distinction and kind of clarification. Yeah. And so in contrast to that, you have sharp force trauma, which are penetrating injuries caused by a sharp object like a knife. Right. Mm-hmm. So blunt force trauma injuries typically cause things like skull fractures, lacerations and abrasions. Right? So basically when I tripped, fell and hit my head on the doorstop, that's blunt force trauma. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So... The defense 
presented Dr. Ferris Bandak, and this is the guy I saw, and I was like, oh my God, you mean I can do this and I can like testify at a trial? So he's a professor of biomechanics at George Washington University. I don't know if he still is or not, but at the time of his testimony, he was. And they brought him in to discuss impact biomechanics of this case. And he testified that the injuries seen on Mrs. Peterson were inconsistent with a beating. And he illustrated how he believed the injuries could be sustained from the fall. He says that the victim could have fallen backward while on the stairway, then attempted to get back up and fell once again. So that would be her impacting her head multiple times. Yeah, but okay, how which accounts is for that? how many. So it was his opinion that these two falls could have been responsible for the injury, for all of the injuries on the back of her head. And I admit to some bias because when I saw his testimony and saw that he was a forensic biomechanist, I was like, boom, I'm convinced. Right. Mm-hmm. So this was so also convinced that this was an accidental fall and not a deliberate yeah. injury caused by her husband. Right. This was also when I was not really I wasn't researching forensic biomechanics. I was just I was out there in San Diego working in more of like a sports injury type of situation. Mm-hmm. So I didn't hadn't researched it a lot. So the state presented as a rebuttal two expert witnesses. The first one was Dr. Butts, who was the state medical examiner for Great all name, of by the Carolina. Way. Yeah. <laughs> and he says that a fall was unlikely to cause multiple lacerations across the back and top of her head. And then they also brought in Dr. James McElhaney, who is a former professor of biomedical engineering and surgery at Duke. And as a little sidebar, this guy does a lot of cervical spine injury biomechanics stuff. And he's all throughout my lit review for my dissertation. Wow. So when I saw that he testified at this thing, I was like, holy crap. And he's like famous. But only only to me um so he testified that in his opinion the injuries were inconsistent with the fall and were more consistent with being beaten with a blunt object he based his conclusion on the location number length and direction of the lacerations the velocity of either the victim's head during a fall or of an object striking the victim's head and the amount of mechanical energy associated with those injuries hmm. so Dr. McElhaney believed that the velocity necessary to cause the lacerations would have been likely to cause a skull fracture during a fall. And he estimated that Kathleen would have had to have sustained at least 15 separate impacts to account for all of her injuries. So basically, he says that for in order for her to have the, the lacerations that she did from falling down the stairs, she would have had an accompanying skull fracture, which she did not. Interesting. Okay. So that supports the theory that somebody, something happened to her. Somebody killed her. Yes. It wasn't an accidental fall. Yes. And so let's talk about the biomechanics of skull fracture, because this is where I like really nerded out. So the analysis of the injuries in Kathleen Peterson's death hinge on scalp lacerations and whether or not these can be determined to be the result of a fall or a blunt force trauma attack, right? Okay. So the defense's position, backed up by review of blunt force trauma cases in North Carolina over the previous 10 years, was that because there's no cases involving blunt force trauma attack that did not involve skull fractures, that he did not do this, basically, they're saying. We couldn't find anything in our lit review going back 10 years um, in the state of North Carolina, so basically he wouldn't be the first. The science doesn't line up. But... That was in 2003, and there's been a bunch of research on this very idea since that original trial. Interesting. 
So examination of blunt force trauma injuries can indicate the type of impact and instrument or weapon used. So in, in, in more recent research, a 2016 paper has found that a smaller object moving at a faster speed is going to inflict more damage than a larger object moving at a slower speed. Right? So the stairs versus a blunt force trauma injury by somebody whacking you in the back of the head or yes, something. Yes, exactly. Okay. So there's this hypothesis in blunt force trauma research that exists that says basically injuries located above this horizontal line in the head. It's about like ear level. Okay. This is called the hat brim line. So the hypothesis is that injuries located above this line are more likely the result of an intentional blow while injuries from an accidental fall typically produce injuries at the base of the skull or anywhere below that line. Oh, wow. That's a really old hypothesis. When you look at that hypothesis experimentally, you get mixed results. All right. So a 2012 paper reviewed 287 cases where blunt force injury to the head was the cause of death, either accidental or intentional. Mm -hmm. And their results showed that lacerations were present in only 38% of cases involving falls downstairs, but in 93% of cases involving blunt objects. Hmm. Cranial lacerations and fractures were present in 100% of cases of falls downstairs. So where there was a cranial laceration, it was more likely to have an accompanying cranial fracture. Okay. All right. So cranial lacerations were found in 89% of cases involving blunt objects, and cranial fractures were found in 97% of cases involving blunt objects. Okay. There were more cases of cranial fracture than cranial lacerations for falling downstairs, meaning it's possible to have a skull fracture without a laceration, Mm -hmm. but not the other way around. Okay. And for blunt objects, you had the reverse. There are more instances of a cranial laceration without a fracture than a fracture without a laceration. Mm. Okay. Facial lacerations were not found in any of the cases of falls downstairs. So she had facial lacerations and... and, She did. And facial fractures were only observed in one of these 287 cases. Interesting. Yep. So she would have had to be in some kind of crazy anomaly for this to fit into that scenario. Yeah, she literally would have had to have been a statistical anomaly when you're looking at 287 cases. So, so analyzing this is just really showing them that they messed up by letting this dude out on an Alfred plea because now you can't prosecute him again. It's mm-hmm. double jeopardy. So, so he basically got away with murder. And and facial lacerations were found in 49% of cases involving blunt objects. All right. So now Jeez. we go back to Kathleen's autopsy. She had no skull fractures, but she did have numerous cranial and facial lacerations. Wow. And you had another paper, this was in 2008, they reviewed 44 autopsies involving blunt force trauma to the head and found that 60% of all reviewed fall cases presented no scalp lacerations, while fewer than 10% of the cases involving blunt weapons presented the same. So you're more likely to not have a laceration falling down the stairs, but it's super unlikely to not have any from a blunt object. Wow. All right. And that's an agreement with Dr. Radish's experience, right? So she knew what she was talking about. She did. And that same study also noted that 35 out of 35 fall cases resulted in three or fewer lacerations, while blunt object cases involved an average of five lacerations. So that goes back to your question of, could you have a laceration from falling down the stairs? Yes, you can, but you're not likely to have very many. Jeez. Right? This is just like... So this is like when I'm looking up this this research for the to write this paper and i'm like holy so crap, when did that did information it. come out from the the last part 
2008 was when this paper was published. Because I don't remember hearing about that when I watched the initial shows on this. Or maybe I did hear about it, but I was already so convinced that he did it that I didn't really give it much weight. So, kind of I mean, I don't out. know how much the the filmmakers went into, like, I mean, this this is I pretty in-depth research, you yeah. know? They tend yeah. to avoid so, that kind of stuff because they, they, I think, generally think that the American public isn't smart enough to be able to comprehend it if they go into scientific detail right. or something like that. And so, to me, the most interesting aspect of Kathleen's injuries is the absence of the skull fracture because I would have expected there to be a skull fracture. Yeah. But that um, 2012 paper found that 70% of the reviewed autopsies involving blunt objects involved both scalp lacerations and skull fractures, but they actually argue that the elasticity of the scalp allows for the mitigation of impacts from large flat objects such as the ground better than focalized forces like those seen in blunt objects. So they're saying that you're more likely going back to when you could have a fracture without a laceration. That's more likely to, to happen. Basically, they're saying that's more likely to happen when you're impacting the ground. And you're more likely to have a laceration without a fracture with a blunt object, right? Yeah. Interesting. They, um, an- another paper... Um, but if that was 2000- the case, though, what do you think he hit her with? Because it wasn't... It obviously wasn't the poker. I'm... I'm actually going to get to that, too, at okay. the end. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. So, Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. So another 2016 paper actually also, you know, found, and, and I, I'm saying this, but as that's when I found this research, and that's when these papers are published. That doesn't mean that's the first time this information was published. That's right. just a reference I found. So a six, 2016 paper found that lacerations also tend to match the shape of the weapon used, huh. and they typically don't extend beyond the length of the weapon used so you're not going to have like a radiating laceration right that's longer than the actual weapon the laceration in kathleen's scalp were noted to be full thickness tears or tears that fully rupture the thickness of the scalp so going all the way down to her skull and looking at information from doing an experimental impact on pig scalps, which are very, pig skin is very similar to human skin, so it's often used in this kind of research. A 2015 study found that lacerations become deeper as impact velocity increases, and like I said, the dimensions of the lacerations did not exceed the dimensions of the striking weapon. So, given this information, my conclusion is kind of basically... What I would do now, if I were consulted on this, is that basically, you, if you don't find the proposed murder weapon, which was the blowpoke during the investigation, mm-hmm. you would still be able to test possible weapons of varying dimensions, uh, you know, length, mass, and things like that, using right. computer testing, or you know, impact testing on a, on a pig head if you had it, or a cadaver head, right. and you would be able to t- determine the velocity required to fully rupture the scalp, but not fracture the skull underneath. Okay. So you could actually get to that number experimentally, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. So that's the biomechanics of it. Let's talk about the blood spatter. The state presented Dwayne Deaver, who was North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation special agent who examined the scene. He They presented him as their blood spatter analysis expert. And, you know, when you get up on the stand, they ask for your qualifications and what makes you a subject matter expert on this. And Deaver testified that he was hired by the State Bureau of Investigation in 1985 and had been trained under senior special agent 
David Spittle, who was kind of recognized as the subject matter expert for bloodstain pattern analysis. Again, crazy name. <laughs> yeah, Spittle. And at the time of the Peterson trial, he had written approximately 200 reports involving bloodstain analysis and that he had participated in about 500 cases involving bloodstain analysis. He also claimed to have investigated 15 scenes involving falls, and he testified that Kathleen was struck a minimum of four times with a blowpoke prior to falling down the stairs. So we're still on the blowpoke. Still on the blowpoke. And that Michael Peterson had attempted to clean up the scene prior to police arriving. That was the luminol footprint thing. He also testified that Michael was in close proximity to Kathleen at the time of her injuries. I think that's based on blood spatter that was on Michael's clothes. The defense presented Dr. Henry Lee, who we all know. And he testified that the medium velocity bloodstain patterns could be caused by the victim coughing up blood as a result of her external injuries. So, like, she didn't have an injury to the base of her skull that would have made her cough up blood from internal injuries, but, like, the blood on her scalp and face ran down and got in her mouth and then she coughed. And he's saying that caused medium velocity bloodstains. Mm-hmm. He also noted that the blood spatter appeared to be moving in multiple directions, inconsistent with a violent attack. And in the documentary, he notes that there's no blood on the ceiling, so there's no cast-off pattern like someone swinging a weapon. Okay, so discounting the possibility of a blowpoke striking her. And so let's talk a little bit about blood spatter analysis. So accurate keyword blood blood stain pattern analysis can tell investigators the type of impact weapon used and whether the assailant or victim was moving at the time of the impact okay and it can also tell the distance between the assailant and the victim at the time of impact and whether or not the victim was moved after impact right right so in general the shape of the blood stain can inform investigators of the type of impact in that low velocity impacts result in more circular blood stains and medium velocity impacts that have like those tails you know Mm -hmm. and then you have ballistic impacts which is like literally looks like paint spatter okay similarly projected blood from arterial wounds produces different blood stain patterns from all of these an arterial wound is going to be like pumping it's going to look like a linear like squirting across the wall kind of a thing and according to one study blood stains produced by blunt force trauma showed that the number of droplets per spatter pattern were substantially greater in impacts with a baseball bat at full speed than in impacts from a baseball bat at half speed or with a hammer or a crowbar. So you can get, basically get different blood, t- blood spatter from different weapons moving at different speeds. Right. That makes sense. And Yeah. In general, in all of the blunt instruments produced larger diameter blood droplets than those produced by by firearms. Like I said, that looks like paint splatter. The state also, you know, presented Dr. John Butts again. Like I said, he um, testified that there was no blood found in the victim's mouth or airway, meaning that it's unlikely that she coughed up blood. It's unlikely that she like aspirated on blood, even breathed it in. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what Dr. Henry Lee's talking about. He's a little bit problematic in his later years, which we can get into on another episode. And according to court opinion, the jury relied really heavily on Agent Deaver's testimony about the blood pattern when they were deliberating. And like I said, Peterson appealed that first conviction, and in 2010, he was granted a new trial because 
it was found that Agent Deaver had misrepresented his expertise as a blood spatter analysis expert. He had never been trained by Agent Spittle. He had only participated in 54 cases involving blood spatter analysis, not 500. He had yeah, only but written 54 30... still seems like a lot to me. I mean, it does, but he'd also only written 36 reports, not 200. And he'd never been to a scene involving a fall prior to Kathleen Peterson's death. And he'd not completed the 60 case minimum to qualify as an expert witness in blood spatter analysis. So he lied about his qualifications too. Yep. He said he was a lot more experienced in analyzing this kind of thing than he did, than he was. Well, he was in good company with... <laughs> with Mike yeah. Nifong? Right. No, yeah. the guy claiming to have the Purple Heart. So. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the appeals court determined that this new evidence regarding Deaver's qualifications would cause a jury to reach a different outcome, and they did grant Michael Peterson a new trial. Agent Dwayne Deaver was fired from the State Bureau of Investigation in 2011, and a oh. bloodstain analysis team that Deaver had trained was suspended and disbanded. Oh, boy. So, now let's get to the part everybody came here for. Let's talk about the owl theory. Wow. This one just is, like, I think why this a good portion of why this case has gotten so much attention. I agree. So in 2009, a neighbor of the Petersons named T. Lawrence Pollard had been following the public details of the case. He is an attorney, but was not involved with the case at all. And he read that back in 2001, the State Bureau of Investigation Crime Lab listed a microscopic owl feather and a wooden sliver from a tree limb in the clump of hair that was found clutched in Kathleen's hand. He approaches police and suggested that an owl might have been responsible for Kathleen's death. He thinks that Kathleen was walking back to the house from the pool and an owl attacked her, digging its talons into her scalp, and that she fought off the bird and went upstairs, but the combination of the attack, the alcohol, and the volume made her woozy and that she slipped on the blood from the attack and fell down the stairs. And that's why she had blood on the bottom of her feet. Because she was already bleeding from this owl attack. Hmm. And here's the thing. When you look at the lacerations on her scalp, which you can see in the, on, in the um, documentary, and, and her autopsy is... Um, I have a link we'll post to it. So there's not pictures of it, but there's, like, drawings. When you look at the lacerations and the pattern of the drawings, it does look like there's, like there's two groupings of lacerations that look like they could be made by talons. They're right next to each other, and they're, like, three-pronged. And I don't really know how to explain how beating somebody over the head would give you two groupings like that that all start at the same origin. So, like, they have the same origin, and then they branch out, like, in three different directions. And they're right next to each other. I don't know how to explain that from a, from beating with a weapon or a fall. So you think he didn't do it. <laughs> so ornithological experts, so that's like bird experts, they have said that these cuts are similar to what would be created by an owl. And a reexamination of the hair in her hand found in 2008 found two more microscopic owl feathers. So now there's a total of three feathers. So she's got hair in right? her hand. Whose hair is in her hand? She, it's hers. It had been pulled out from the roots. She has her own hair in her hand. Yeah. What the hell? So 
the makers of the staircase actually ended up contacting an expert in Montana to discuss this theory. And after reviewing the evidence, that expert is convinced that Kathleen did actually die from an owl attack. She says that the shape and placement of the wounds, the timing of the attack, because apparently December is when owls are mating and they're very territorial, and the presence of the microscopic feathers, which she says are present on owls' feet, have all led her to think that that an owl did attack her. They think that um, this expert, there's an article, it's a whole long article um, that we're going to link to in the show notes, but basically they've provided evidence of other owl attacks that show that owls are very territorial during mating season and that when they do attack humans they attack on their heads just sounds and that so they crazy can, i'm sorry it just, it's crazy it just sounds and, bonkers. and according to a study from the journal of experimental biology an owl can attack with a force equivalent of 150 times a rodent's weight so they can put some force on you all right and this neighbor lawyer person believes that had a jury been given this information at the original trial, they would have come to a different conclusion, but the defense never put this theory forward. Hmm. So that is all of the evidence, all of the theories. What do you think? Did I convince you he did it or he didn't do it? Did I change your mind? I mean, I think the likelihood of an owl attack, like... It's an interesting theory, but, like, I just really got this creeped out feeling when I heard this guy talk. He just seemed guilty to me. Like, I don't really think you changed my mind with this at all. I mean... Yeah. So, when I saw this, like I said, I was... I, when I saw the documentary, I was convinced that he did not do it. Or I was I was not convinced that he did do it is probably a better way to say that. Okay. And then when I started doing this research for this paper, all of the stuff on the blunt force trauma injuries and the biomechanics convinced me that he did do it because, and, and, and I'm going to use the evidence in the um, Elizabeth Ratliff case. I don't know if he did that one or not, but she had a linear skull fracture and a linear skull fracture is going to be caused by a, a linear object. So that could be a weapon. But it could also be the edge of the stairs. Yeah. And I don't know which one she had. If you have, if you fall on the ground, a blunt object as big as the ground is going to cause like a, like a radiating fracture. So it's going to like depress the skull where the actual impact occurs. This is when a fracture occurs. So um, when, when an impact occurs, it's going to depress the skull and then you're going to like have fractures that radiate away from that main point of impact and obviously Kathleen did not have any fractures which I think is what makes this case so difficult to understand I but the but go ahead there's just too much um, evidence pointing the finger at Michael Peterson in my opinion yeah and so what really convinced me was reading that that research about the lacerations and seeing that with blunt force trauma injuries, it is possible to have, it's more likely to have lacerations without fracture than falls down the stairs. With falls down the stairs, you're more likely to have a fracture without a laceration. And when I read that, that really convinced me because to look at the numbers, it's like 89 to 93% of um, blunt force 
trauma injuries um, resulted in lacerations. And I forget the number. But anyway, you can't just look at the 80, 90, 93% and say one is more believable than the other. Those are both pretty similar numbers. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the fact that you can have a laceration without a fracture and in a blunt force trauma injury of, of a weapon, but not the other way around, mm-hmm. and, it ha- and that there were no cases of facial lacerations in falls down the stairs, to me, that changed my mind. To me, I ended up writing the paper. I came into the, to the idea of writing this paper. I had to do a research paper on, blunt force tra- on investigating blunt force trauma, and I came into this. I was going to write a, a paper on the research into this, how you do it, and then I was going to make a case that Michael Peterson did not kill his wife. Mm-hmm. And I got into the research, and it completely changed my mind. I do think he did this. How do you explain the and, owl stuff, though? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that question. I don't act, I mean, I don't know, but I, I'm wondering if, because it wasn't, we, we know it wasn't the blowpoke, mm-hmm. but was it a stick? Mm-hmm. Was it a branch? that an owl had been near. I mean, I think it's really like in that kind of environment where you do have owls around, I think it's likely that particles of that sort of thing could Mm -hmm. drift in a breeze. They're Mm -hmm. they're microscopic particles. Like if you have owls around your house that nest in the trees around your house, it's it's likely that you could have microscopic particles floating in the air that could come into contact with you but and and she also had like pine needles stuck to her hands so it wasn't like she was she had no evidence of the outside on her yeah you know I don't know there it doesn't talk about like whether there was bark or anything like that but I don't know I mean there there was a wooden sliver you know from a tree branch that was also found in this thing of hair so I don't I'm wondering if it was a stick or a branch wow I don't know that to be sure too for him to get rid of yeah you could just throw it outside yeah and, I mean, that house is literally in the middle of the woods. Yeah. You would have to comb so much to find that. Yeah. Or you could burn it. And s- End of story. Or burn Done. it. Done. Yep. And so, basically, my conclusion is that had this research that I've discussed, with all these papers coming out, you know, the earliest one that I, just, I talked about came out in 2008, had this research been available to the prosecution, I think they could have made a better argument that actually would have stuck in the trial and they wouldn't have had to rely on Dwayne Deaver. So how to explain the talon like marks? Do you think that's just coincidental from impact with the branch? I have no, I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know. I think there's always something in a case that's just, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit. Yeah. And this may be that. I don't know. I don't know how to explain. I really don't. And it does look like talon. Like it does look like a bird, like bird talons. Yeah, but the thing is, if you want to see something, you will see something. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Like, if you didn't know that that was an option, then you wouldn't see it. Right, which is why nobody saw it from the prosecution or defense, because why would you think that? It wasn't until 2009 that this neighbor comes forward and he's like, hey, what about an owl? Yeah, an owl probably did it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, okay. That is our deep dive into the staircase. And I hope it's a different perspective than what you guys have heard elsewhere. I've never heard it explained like that, so I'm encouraged. Cool. But this is the point where we're going to wrap the podcast up. So, so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Social media, Darcy? 
Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So we're going to post all of our information there and we'll post some pics. And um, I do have a Google Doc that I'm going to have to give you, Sarah, because there's too many references to just give you in a, in a linked email. Um, but I'm not going to post the um, like academic articles. If you guys want those, reach out on Twitter or Instagram or email and I can provide that for you because I do have all that as well. Awesome. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and stay away from those owls, right? Yeah, be careful. Watch out for owls <laughs> in December. Bye, Bye guys. <laughs>